Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. And today I'm joined by Jay Turner, Professor Jay Turner of Wellesley College. We're going to be talking about his new book about batteries, a book called Charge, The History of Batteries and Lessons for a Clean Energy Future. Delighted to have Jay on the show today. Hey, Jay, welcome to the podcast. Very nice to see you. How are you? I'm doing well, Ted. Thanks so much for having me on. And where are you sitting as we speak right now? Are you in your office at Wellesley? I am. I'm in my office at Wellesley College in the Environmental Studies Department, which uh, Wellesley is just outside of Boston. Yeah. And I think I was doing a little bit of uh, research on you. You've been there since 2006, so almost almost 20 years. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm working my way up there. But it's been a good place to be, and our Environmental Studies Department's grown a lot in that time. So it's all good. What, what's the best thing about uh, being a professor at Wellesley in Environmental Studies? Hey, I, our students, really. I mean, that's you know, number one. We get incredibly bright, motivated students who um, you know, have such a wide array of interests. But Environmental Studies has been a thriving major. So just you know, the chance to work with these enthusiastic students. And then we just had our reunion weekend to see them come back and hear that you know, one's working in the attorney general's office in Rhode Island and another's working with a nonprofit organization on advocacy and lobbying group. And just to see how many of them are still in the environmental arena. You know, that's great. What more can you ask for? That's got to be hugely, hugely fulfilling. So you're you you told me you're you finished up the spring semester. You've got a short break and then you go right into the summer session. What's your role in the summer session? Yeah, there are summer classes that happen at Wellesley. I'm not actually teaching classes. We also have a, a really big summer research program. A lot of students come to Wellesley because they want to work with faculty on research. And I've got two research students with me who are starting tomorrow, and they'll be working with me on my project, which right now is tracking the development of the domestic battery electric vehicle supply chain. They'll be working with me on this tracking project for the next two months. So did you know from an early age, they say that about doctors, that you know from an early age that you want to be a doctor. Did you know you wanted to be a teacher from an early age, Jay? No, I mean, I didn't know that I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't know that I wanted to do environmental studies. I didn't know that I wanted to get a PhD in environmental history because, you know, I had no idea what, what that was. And I feel like I, you know, I, I uh, kind of walked through a whole bunch of open doors and wound up somewhere really interesting, but didn't plan it all out in advance. How cool. Now, where do you, where would you grow up? Where was home? I am from Virginia, original. Because yeah. I saw that you went to Washington and Lee University, which frankly, I'd never heard of. And then I looked it up and it was established in 1749, one of the oldest institutions in the country. Uh, then you went then you went to Brown, uh, which I love. And, and then you went off to Princeton and got your Ph.D. Uh, environmental history, you said. PhD. That's right. That's now, right. That, would, would, some people, would some people say that's a short history? Uh, you know, the relationship between people and the environment and the way we've been changing the environment and the environment has shaped, you know, human history. I mean, that that's as old as the story gets. Yeah. And when did the environmental movement begin, do you think? Would that be sort of Rachel Carson and Silent Spring and early 60s or... Yeah, I mean, it comes in waves, right? So, you know, that's a key moment where the environmental movement really begins to take off and kind of take on the form that we, you know, think of today. But, you know, of course, you know, back at the start of the 20th century and the rise of the conservation movement and, um, you know, 
efforts to protect public lands and create parks and manage and uh, protect wildlife species. You know, that's another important part, you know, or moment. But then, you know, there's a 19th century history to this as, as well. So, you know, there, you know, you can pick your starting point and find you know, there's a rich story to tell. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's talk about the book, the latest book. I know you've written, I think, three books, but this latest one, it really caught my attention. It's it's called Charge, A History of Batteries and Lessons for a Clean Energy Future. And if you had, what what would you say are some of the top takeaways? It's a, it's, you've done a lot of research, I know. Yeah, well, I mean, it's truth in advertising. The title really is what the book is about. I mean, it, it is a history of batteries, uh, but it is a history, you know, that is written and researched, um, you know, very much with an eye towards the clean energy transition that we're witnessing right now. And, you know, kind of the, you know, the starting point for this project was, you know, I could walk into my intro environmental studies class and, you know, my students would already have smart things to say about, you know, issues with fossil fuels and concerns um, and potential of renewable energy sources and lots of questions about nuclear. And people, you know, knew that batteries were going to play uh, a role in an energy transition, but batteries were, you know, that's kind of where the conversation stopped. You know, what kind of batteries are we talking about? Where do the materials come from? Where do they go? Are they different batteries from the batteries that, you know, are in my laptop or, you know, in my remote control? This, you know, my students and me too, I didn't really have a starting point for thinking about batteries. And so, you know, that was the motivation for the project. Um, so, you know, go back and look at this history and how it can help us think about this battery powered future we're moving towards. So when, here's a really naive question. When was the first battery developed? Yeah, I, I most, I'm, you know, so my my interest, my book is not about kind of the basic long, you know, history of when different stages of batteries were invented. I'm only interested in when they actually became technologies that were being you know, developed at scale and put into people's hands to do useful things. Uh, and so from that perspective, you know, it's the late 19th century, you get the first, um, you know, what are become dry cell batteries, which, you know, go into, um, you know, pretty early on devices like flashlights and radios. And then, you know, the first, you know, mass use of uh, rechargeable batteries is for starter batteries and, and um, you know, conventional cars, right? So starting in the 1910s and 1920s, you see lead acid battery production scale up massively to meet demand for, for cars. So those are two of the historical cases I focus on. One's the lead acid battery. And then the other is the story of the throwaway, kind of the rise of the throwaway AA battery. So you're not, you, the, the book is not focused on energy storage. You know, I come from a utility background. It's not okay. focused on sort of different forms of energy storage to, to balance the renewables and the grid so much as it is looking at more of the consumer products. Is that right? Yeah, I, you know, right. So it's not focusing on kind of the wide spectrum of energy storage technologies and everything from pumped hydro storage where you're using lakes at different levels or, you know, storing energy and molten salt. I mean, all of those are really important and really interesting topics and lots of research is happening there. But no, it's focused on um, chemical batteries that, you know, have, we've, you know, are counting on, right, to power our cars and to help level energy demand, electricity demand on the grid. Um, you know, so all of these technologies that are going to be important for the 21st century, but we've been using batteries at mass scale, you know, throughout the 20th century, right? So all of those AA throwaway batteries, um, every car out there, right, has um, lead acid batteries sitting under its hood, including most of the electric vehicles that are out there. And so, 
you know, we think about batteries as being kind of really important to the future we're headed towards, but they've been central to the ways that we communicate, travel, um, and manage, you know, the electrical grid historically as well. So you were the one who flagged the rechargeable. I wrote, I wrote a little bit about battery recycling because I was horrified. I was back in New York visiting my mother and and I was told by the, the solid waste uh, disposal folks at the town of Oyster Bay, just throw your batteries into the trash. And I was like, I, really? Uh, and I said, that can't, that can't be. Here in California, we don't throw them into the trash. But why aren't more people using rechargeable batteries? Uh, I did the math. I, you, know, I, you know, I went and I looked at buying eight, uh, you know, Duracell batteries uh, versus buying, I guess I was looking at eight Panasonic batteries and a little eight bay charger. I, I, the, the latter, I would invest maybe thirty-five or forty dollars, and by my calculation, I would vo- these batteries last 20, 2,100 charges, and my calculation suggests that I would be saving something like fourteen thousand dollars over the life of those rechargeable batteries. Why aren't more people using rechargeable batteries? Yeah, I, so I think on the one hand people are using more rechargeable batteries, right? Just because there are you know, so many of the devices that are being put on the market now come with lithium ion batteries built into them, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there has been a shift uh, in that direction. Um, but I think, you know, why are we still, I guess another way to put it is, why do we continue to use so many of the disposable AA batteries? And, you know, a big piece of it is that they're really convenient and they work really well. And, you know, they're not cheap, um, at least in terms of how much energy you get out of them, but the convenience they deliver um, and, you know, their price point, you know, just make them the default. Whereas, as with so many other um, kind of greener technologies, right, the upfront investment in those rechargeables and the charging um you know, station for them, you know, that's a deterrent for people. Um, and it means planning ahead. Uh, so I think, you know, that's a big piece of why, you know, we haven't seen people swapping out their AA disposables for AA rechargeables, um, you know, at that level. But I do think kind of broader, right, we're putting a lot more products on the market that just use rechargeable batteries because the lithium ion battery technology has become so much better and um, less expensive. Right. I think one of the one of the aspects of your book, if I understand it, is that you're you're raising awareness about the life cycle um, issues surrounding batteries. And so that goes into, you know, the scarcity of of materials that are used to build to to make the manufacture of the batteries. You could be getting materials from countries that are that have uh, that are unstable uh, politically. Then you get the mining of the battery, the manufacture, the disposal. There's a whole upstream, a whole series of upstream impacts and downstream downstream impacts. And I think um, the the book, one of the one of the reviewers of your book said that you, the, the book sort of reeks of they didn't say reeks but of green pragmatism. That you're <laughs> you're, you're you're really saying that you know that you, the battery is solving one problem, but maybe creating a whole set of other problems. So the, I mean, those are all topics that are important to the book. And I guess just to kind of pivot back to your question about recycling AA batteries, and, you know, from my perspective, or using rechargeables instead, I mean, what's interesting to me is not just thinking about it in terms of the cost, but also thinking about it in terms of the environmental life cycle, right? And, you know, so much of the concern about batteries and other technologies focuses on what do we do with them at end of life? Why do we keep throwing away so much stuff? Uh, but, you know, the case of the AA batteries 
is um, kind of illuminating because it's actually not end of life that's the real concern. It's where do we source all of the materials that go into these AA batteries in the first place? And you know, it turns out that if you're not thinking about you know how much the batteries cost, but you know the resources that's going into them, the energy that it takes to manufacture them, you know, there's a lot to be learned about all of these battery technologies. But just to stick with the disposables, double uh, A's for a second, it takes 160 times more energy to manufacture a double A battery than it actually delivers it into when you use it when you pull it out of that blister pack. Um, wow! Wow! The reason, the reason is because if you're gonna produce a battery that you can stick in a blister pack for 10 years and pull it out and have it work just as well as it would have if you had you know started using it a month after it had been manufactured you have to have incredibly highly refined materials that go into it so the zinc and the manganese and the other materials that are uh, the graphite that are so important to the function of that battery are you know extremely highly refined materials that um you know meter performance standard that's not, not you know just about you know how long does the battery last but you know how long can it be stored and is it gonna not corrode right and damage the device that's that it's been put into and so you know thinking about batteries in that context and understanding the resources the energy that goes into manufacturing them all of that is you know part of what i describe as kind of gaining a, uh, an industrial ecological literacy right it's you know if we're going to be responsible um, you know, consumers, if we're going to be uh, concerned about the environment, it's not just knowing, you know, where our water comes from or where our electricity comes from, but, you know, where are the resources and the materials that go into these kinds of products and technologies that we rely upon so greatly? That's a phenomenal number, that 160, that the, the, the embedded energy in, yeah. a, in, a, in a single AA battery is 160 times the energy that the battery delivers. That That really makes the case for buying rechargeables that at least uh, are 160 times or 159 times. Let's well, here's the other thing. Just let me add one one more thing onto that, right? So, so one, I should add an asterisk, which is that's based on a study that was done in 2010. It was done at, um, at MIT and it was commissioned by the uh, National Electrical Manufacturers Association. Um, and, you know, so the data should be good, but that the data is a decade old and, you know, manufacturing processes, the electric grid have all become cleaner in the interim. So that that number um, and just the manufacturing processes may have become more efficient. So that number may have changed. But back in 2010, if you took that amount of energy and assumed that it, the electricity that was being supplied to do this was kind of the average of the U.S. grid, and you multiply and kind of add in that um, carbon intensity, it turns out that the amount of electricity contained at end of use in that AA battery is about 40 times more greenhouse gas intensive than the average uh, electricity off of the U.S. electric grid. It's kind of the dirtiest, arguably the dirtiest source of energy you can use. That's fascinating. And I, I can't remember the number and I don't want to I don't want to throw out a number that can't be substantiated. But my friend Rick Heady, who I used to work with at the Rocky Mountain Institute, talked about how much a kilowatt hour of electricity coming out of a double A battery is. Oh yeah, I've got that number for you too. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's a crazy amount. It's, it's like a thousand times more expensive yeah. than, than grid electricity. Yeah, I mean, all of which is why, you know, it's, it's not the amount that we're paying for, right? And this is true of batteries in general. It's not the amount, it's the quality of that energy, right? That it's instantaneous, that it's storable, that it's portable. That's what makes batteries so valuable. 
Let's let's pivot to uh, to lithium batteries or LIBATs, as I like to call them, which, you know, I like to talk about the lithium revolution, which has certainly revolutionized uh, batteries in electric vehicles, uh, mm-hmm. lighter, obviously, uh, more range. Um, I love driving electric vehicles. They've got so much punch uh, to them. But um, talk about lithium batteries because they've they've obviously created this amazing platform for EVs and obviously also for now what we're calling hybrid buildings. You know, batteries uh, in stationary sources in buildings. How do you how do you view lithium? Are we going to be is this a transition chemistry or is this uh, is this with us for a long time? What do you think? Yeah, well, so half of the book is about this lithium revolution as you're describing it. And it's, you know, there's just so much that's fascinating uh, about this as a topic. Um, And I guess, you know, just to come back to that specific question, you know, is this going to be a defining kind of technology? If you look back over history, there have only been a few battery chemistries that have been developed and marketed at scale. And so, you know, the lithium ion batteries, you know, first came to market in the 1990s. And, you know, I describe it as a ladder of implementation where, you know, initially they're being used for small scale applications like cell phones and laptops. And then we see them start to get scaled up to uh, serve um, electric vehicles. And now we're seeing them more frequently being scaled up for use in utility applications. And, you know, is this, this ladder of implementation is important because it's, only as the engineering was refined and the safety was of these um, you know, batteries was was managed, you know, was it possible to move from kind of a consumer products application to a vehicle application and now up to a grid scale application? But at the same time, right, it's also dependent on scaling the investment, the capital investment in manufacturing these batteries. And at this right, at, at this very moment, right, the you know literally the tens of billions of dollars of projects that are being announced means that we're seeing capital going into lithium-ion batteries that's going to be you know that's going to be there for a decade or more to come. And so even right if you know the sodium-ion batteries or that next you know battery technology you know takes off and offers kind of revolutionary potential, there is so much being invested in the lithium ion battery supply chain um, that, you know, I, I think you know, we're going to see this be a key technology at least for a decade. And, you know, hopefully other even better battery uh, technologies will arise alongside, but I don't think they're going to displace the lithium ion battery, um, you know, in the foreseeable future. What about, what about the supply of lithium? Um, I know that Bolivia is a major source, which is an unstable country. I know here in this here out in California, out in the, near the Salton Sea, the Coachella and the Coachella Valley, there's there's some lithium yeah. in the soils. But do we have the supply for that to be the dominant battery technology, like you said, for probably the next decade? Yeah. So a big. I mean, this taps into a big theme of the book, which is that you know we describe them as lithium-ion batteries or LIBATs, if you prefer. Uh, but you know they're actually lithium, graphite, manganese, cobalt nickel, aluminum, right? Just kind of go down the list. And actually, when you look at it in terms of weight, uh, the lithium is actually a very small portion of a lithium ion battery. And so one, you know, to understand the history and the kind of the human side of the of the lithium ion battery, which is, this, you know, these are stories I tell, it means looking at a whole bunch of different places around the world. I mean, it's about cobalt from the DRC, but it's also about graphite coming from China. It's uh, about lithium that's being sourced from um, maybe from 
uh, Chile, but more likely Australia. Um, and you know, and so it's understanding kind of how these you know resources connect to these places and the communities that are involved in their production. Um, but to come back to the question of like, is there enough lithium? Uh, lithium has become incredibly valuable along with these other kind of energy relevant materials, which means that people are looking for lithium and yep. with a level of intensity that wasn't the case a decade or two decades ago. Um, so I'm not concerned about whether there's enough of any one of these resources. Um, I don't think that's what's going to become the bottleneck. What I am concerned about is the amount of time that it takes to bring a mine and a refinery online. And you know, and doing that in ways that are sustainable, ways that um, reward the communities that these projects are located in, respect indigenous communities that have interests in some of these, many of these areas, all you know, doing that work, right, takes a lot of time. And at the rate at which we're seeing you know, battery manufacturing, electric vehicle, grid scale deployment accelerating, you know, we need to see uh, you know, a, a huge boom in um, you know, resource production, mining of these clean energy um, minerals. And that, that I'm concerned about. I think we you know, may not be able to, uh, the mining industry, the investment in the mining industry just may not be able to keep up. What, what kind of feedback are you getting from the book so far? What, what are people, what are people sort of saying, Hey, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I, I'm a lot of really, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a really fun project because it is historical, but it speaks to, you know, a transition that we're all witnessing and right. And those of us who are concerned about climate change are, you know, really excited about um, yeah. just how, you know, the potential right to actually envision a future that is, um, you know, net zero by 2050. And so, you know, it, this has been a lot of buzz around the topic, which is um, certainly work to the book's advantage. And, you know, it's just meant the chance to talk to, you know, policymakers, to people in the um, advocacy world, people in the battery industry, you know, who are, you know, interested in taking a big picture view of this, you know, energy transition and the role of batteries in it. And then how, you know, to really think about batteries is to think about the materials and the social justice implications of sourcing the materials. And so, you know, I think that's really people have had a lot of questions. We have had a lot of conversations about that. I think the other thing that's been exciting that's drawn a lot of attention is a year ago, is I was I finished the book. The book was at the press and the book came out last August. Um, so last summer I thought, oh, I'm just going to take the summer off. You know, I just finished a book, right? Don't don't I deserve a summer off? Um, I thought so, but it turned out that I was teaching one of two Ukrainian students at Wellesley College, and um, the spring of 2022, it became clear that my student couldn't go home, and we needed to find a way to keep her at Wellesley College for the summer, and so the college pulled together some resources and was able to bring her on board kind of short notice as a research student for the summer. Um, and she was working with me. And so a year ago, you're like, well, what are we going to do for the summer? You know, now, now we need a project. And I kind of held out two options. And one of them was just, you know, the sense that there was a lot happening in the battery sector, right? There were projects that were being announced, you know, new EV facilities, new battery manufacturing facilities, new mining operations. And I just, I felt like I was 
suddenly I just felt like I was at the end of a fire hose and it's just like a blitz, you know, just uh, mixing metaphors, but, you know, just so many press releases and announcements and blog posts that were going up. And so I, I said to my student, Arzi, I said, well, maybe we should just start counting like how many projects are being announced, you know, how many gigawatt hours of capacity are, um, you know, being proposed and just start inventorying this. And so we did, we started just counting the and kind of documenting what was happening in the battery electric vehicle supply chain. And then when the Inflation Reduction Act passed and had its domestic sourcing provisions included, all of the research we had been doing last summer suddenly had new policy relevance. And so we've been tracking the response in the domestic battery EV supply chain to the Inflation Reduction Act. And that's been really exciting because the book Charged closes with a call for policy that is a lot like the Inflation Reduction Act, and clearly no connection between what I said in the book and what happened the month it was published. Um, but it, it, but that was the motivation for doing this tracking. And so there's been a lot of interest in our tracker. We've been putting up monthly updates on Twitter, um, putting out, you know, doing blog posts uh, about um, the investments in the battery supply chain, and that's generated a lot of attention. Um, both in and of itself and attention to the book as well. Wait, what a great story. How, how fantastic that you, that Wellesley gave that, that student, uh, you know, the opportunity to stay and, and to be so involved with such great research with you. Hey, I want to ask um, about four or five quick questions here. Um, okay. First off, how long does it take to write a book like that? Is that, is that multiple years or what would you, what, how does that work, Jay? Uh, it took about 10 years. Um, and I got scared uh, a couple of times and wound up and almost stopped and then uh, wound up writing the final book in a year. Very, very good. And then you wrote, um, you've written a couple other books, one on the wilderness. What, what can you give like uh, 10, 15 seconds on that book? What's, what's up? With yeah, that? that was my first book. And, you know, People talk about the modern environmental movement starting in the 1970s and being about Carson and concerns about air pollution and water pollution and threats to human health. Uh, my That book tells the story of how wilderness, right, kind of the oldest of environmental issues, how debates over wilderness changed in the modern environmental era. How interesting. How interesting. And then you wrote a book called The Republican Reversal, which looks at, I think, the how Nixon really was at the at the foundation of what we sort of the modern environmental movement, or, or at least environmental regulation. And then Trump maybe is just the polar opposite. Is that is that the is that fundamentally the reversal? Yeah, I mean you captured it, and that's a co-authored book. I wrote it with Drew Eisenberg at um, the University of Kansas, and right, it just it was kind of my it was. Well, in 2016, it didn't seem like anybody cared about batteries anymore, and I couldn't figure out how to write the battery book anyways, and so I just put it on the bookshelf. And you know, my response to Trump was, as a historian, was, you know, how in the world did we get here? How did we get from Republican Richard Nixon creating the EPA and signing the Clean Air Act to Donald Trump, who wanted to take it all apart? And of course, the hinge point is Reagan. And so that's kind of the arc of that, that book. Next question, Solarized Natick. It sounds like you and a bunch of students got involved with a community solar project in the town of Natick, Massachusetts. Is that right? Yeah, so the state of Massachusetts has, you know, has a robust um, kind of residential solar 
industry thanks to favorable state policies. And one of the programs that the state supported were Solarize, community solar campaigns and uh, working with the town of Natick, which is next door to Wellesley and the sustainability um, office there. And then my students, uh, we uh, and a whole bunch of volunteers from the town of Natick, we put together a really big Solarize campaign. It wound up being the, I think the most successful Solarize campaign in the state of Massachusetts. Um, so that was a really fun project. And then I'm also excited because this coming year, I've got a student doing their senior thesis, their honors thesis on residential, not just residential, but solar adoption in Massachusetts. Because you would think, right, Massachusetts electricity costs pretty much the same all across the state. The, there are only two utilities in the state. The amount of sunshine is about the same across the state. You'd think there'd be a lot of similarities in solar adoption across the state. It's not the case at all. It varies wildly from town to town and not in ways that you might expect. I mean, it's not all kind of the wealthier suburbs that are doing it. Um, and so kind of her her project is to try and explain this uh, surprising variation in solar adoption in the state of Massachusetts. Well, that's going to be an interesting, I can't wait to hear the findings. What's some of the early thoughts about this or the hypotheses, I guess you would say? Yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it, it may well be local factors, right? So could it be communities where there were solarized campaigns that, you know, those were successful and played a role in kind of creating the neighborhood effect, which you know, we've seen with solar adoption? Um, you know, could it be, you know, kind of someone who's entrepreneurial, right? You know, a sustainability officer in a particular town who really kind of drives um, adoption. I, I, you know, I think what my student's going to do is kind of look at the places that don't fit the pattern. What are the outliers? And then kind of work up case studies to try and explain, you know, why is it that this more urban, um, diverse, uh, lower income community, and we have a few of those where there's a lot of solar adoption. What explains why solar worked, um, you know, in ways that, uh, you know, really you know, aligned with kind of the goal of getting everybody to go solar, you know, why did that happen in, you know, that community? So we'll see. I, ask me in a year, or not even a year, eight months, I can report back. Will do. How do you get balance in your life, Jay? You seem, you seem healthy, happy. Uh, you, you got, what, what, what would you say? I know you bike to, you bike to your office, but what, what else do you do to, to maintain your, your health and your balance and your wellness? Yeah. I, I do my best like everybody else. And there are definitely times that don't feel <laughs> all that balanced, but um, the summer is good if you're a professor for bringing in a little bit more balance. But my, you know, apart from doing things with my family and outdoors and doing stuff like coaching soccer, my like surprising passion is I really enjoy carpentry. I do a lot of, a lot of carpentry projects. So Great. that just being able to put that nail in and it stays and it does exactly what I expected and it's you know, exactly the right 16th of an inch, that can be pretty satisfying. Nice. Well, listen, I know that uh, your your students are lucky to have you as a professor. Wellesley is lucky to have you as a department chair. It's been great talking to you. I, I encourage our listeners to, to get your book. I'm going to get a copy of your book, Charged. And uh, thanks so much, Jay. It was great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you, Ted. Nice to connect. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.